As you can see from the uh, text that is uh, printed in the bulletin, the order of service, we are interrupting our series of studies in the Gospel of Luke that have kept us busy through most of this past year. And uh, appropriate to the particular Sunday of the year, I'm drawing your attention instead to the book of Esther, the ninth chapter, just uh, 11 verses, 18 through uh, 28. Uh, of course, the great story has already been told of the terrible threat posed to the life and safety of the people of Israel, at least those amongst uh, that people who were living in Persia at the time, uh, concocted by this wicked man Haman, and the remarkable way, the absolutely wonderful way in which God delivered his people from Haman's evil intentions and uh, set them even in a higher and safer place as a result of all that occurred. Then uh, picking up the, the uh, history at the 18th verse of chapter 9, the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme of Haman had devised, that Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows, the very gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai, you remember. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. Today begins the Christian Church's celebration of Advent and Christmas all around the world. This is according to the view held widely in Christendom to be a particularly holy and happy time of year for Christians. Or is it? You're aware that there have been many Christians, especially Protestant Christians, and in particular 
Reformed, Puritan, and Presbyterian Christians who have objected to the celebration of Christmas. Some of our predecessors in the faith have made this objection a matter of principle and have stood for their principles in a manner which we today would have to acknowledge was and courageous and inspiring. I think of Sandy Gordon, for example, a man who lived in Scotland before and during the days of the Reformation in the 16th century. He was a giant of a man and very strong, and so those who lived around him referred to him as Strong Sandy Gordon. He was an untamed man, both physically and spiritually, until on a business trip to England, he somehow came into the possession of one of Wycliffe's contraband Bibles. And from that day until his death, that Bible was never out of his hands and never ceased exercising its softening influence upon his heart and his character. But gentle a man as he became under the influence of God's grace mediated through God's Word, the old strength now sanctified was still there. Now, as the Sabbath became more and more sanctified in Scotland during the days of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic feast days and saints' days fell more and more and more into disuse to the rage of the papal authorities. And so it was that an act was passed by king and parliament to enforce upon the entire population the keeping of these Roman Catholic days in the Roman Catholic manner. One of the clauses of that act prohibited the yoking of oxen to the plow on Christmas Day on pain of the forfeiture of those oxen. Strong Sandy Gordon could not sacrifice his conscience, but Canny Scott that he was didn't want to lose his oxen either. So he yoked his ten sons to the plow and plowed his fields all Christmas Day long and then defied the authorities to unhitch his team. All hail to strong Sandy Gordon. That sort of Christmas, full of superstition and forced upon the church by papal authority, was no Christmas for a Bible-believing Christian to celebrate, and the threat of king or priest is no reason for any believer to celebrate any Christmas at all. But we can hardly deny that just as in Gordon's day, so in our own there are many terrible reasons why Christmas is widely celebrated in our society. Our culture has raised the corruption of this time of year to an art form. Christmas is as popular and it is as important as it is in our culture, socially, emotionally, economically, precisely because its true significance has been so terribly and intentionally debased. Perhaps we shouldn't celebrate Christmas as we do. Should we decorate trees, exchange gifts, set apart a special day and season of the year? Should we really? The children hold their breath. <laughs> what is he going to say? Is he going to tell us not to celebrate Christmas, not to decorate a Christmas tree, not to give presents or receive them?
Well, children, what if that were God's word and will? Would you gladly give up Christmas for the Lord's sake? Well, I won't keep you in suspense. Oh, yes, we should celebrate Christmas. Most joyfully and happily celebrate this season of the year. Christmas cherries are grand and presents are wonderful. Now, we should celebrate it as, Christmas, as Christians and not as the world around us does, but celebrate it we certainly should. But perhaps that's simply my opinion. Perhaps I'm for Christmas because I like to receive presents or enjoy the trimming of a Christmas tree. No, there are reasons for thinking that God himself would have us be a people who love Christmas and who celebrate Christmas and look forward to its celebration every year. I think the Bible gives us solid reasons to be lovers of Christmas, and I want to set them before you this morning as the Advent season begins. My hope is that in this way, God helping us, we will celebrate both the season and Christmas itself with all of its proper reasons and justifications and motivations and purposes fixed in our minds and in our hearts. And in this way, it will be a Christmas which is not only a greater joy to us, but also a pleasure and an honor to our God and Savior. I thought that a good way of doing this would be to set before you the reasons why good Christian men and women in the years uh, that have gone by have often thought that we should not celebrate Christmas and then to test those arguments against the Bible itself. The first reason advanced against the celebration of Christmas by Christians is that it is nowhere commanded in Holy Scripture. Christians are to be people of the book in their worship especially. They are to be people of the book who live their lives and honor God according to its teaching. But nowhere in the Bible do we read anything about Christmas. Nowhere are we ever commanded to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ once a year. But then the Bible teaches us, does it not, in many other ways than with direct and explicit commandments about this and about that. All that the Scripture commands us is to be our guide, of course, but also all that the Bible teaches us by principle, principles that then can be applied and extended to many new and different circumstances, or all that the Bible teaches us by example or by illustration or by its history itself, by anything, by any mode of communication by which God chooses to reveal to us what pleases Him and how He would have us live and worship Him. For example, the first Lord's Supper was observed by 12 men reclining around a table. Never once does the Bible tell us to celebrate the Lord's Supper differently than that. But we learn in many other ways that in the church, the Supper of the Lord ought to be celebrated by men and women together, and it is not necessary to recline around a table. Jesus taught us to wash one another's feet. But we have no difficulty understanding that we can do what he commanded us in this day of socks and shoes in other ways. 
Now, if you interrogate Holy Scripture as to whether God's people ought to celebrate the great events of their salvation with special feasts and holidays, the only answer you ever get to that question is yes. By all means, yes, we are commanded in God's Word to remember the great works by which God has redeemed us. These great events in history are to be kept alive in the consciousness both of the individual believer and of the whole church. And God taught His people in ancient times that one important way to do that was with annual feasts and holidays commemorating those events. The Passover was such a feast commemorating God's deliverance of His people from Egypt, but then that feast was laid down in the law of Moses. And that's why I chose the text I did to read to you this morning. The Feast of Purim, the celebration and commemoration of God's deliverance of a portion of His people uh, in Persia from a plot to murder them all, was a creation of the people. This point is made explicitly and several times in the passage we read, especially in verses 26 and following. They decided to do this. They decided that all the rest of the people should do this. There was nothing about this feast in the law of God. The Jews in Jerusalem and Judea would not even have known about it until later. No book of Holy Scripture ever commands its celebration. And yet clearly in this book of the Bible, what God's people did in establishing this feast is regarded not only as good, but as natural and as a wonderful thing. What is more, and perhaps even more important for our purposes this morning, another such feast was instituted among the Jews during the period between the prophet Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. As some of you will remember, during the middle of the second century BC, the temple in Jerusalem was profaned by Antiochus Epiphanes, a powerful king who had conquered Judea. Then, as a result of the heroic resistance of a band of Jewish guerrilla fighters known as the Maccabees, after the family name of those men who led them, eventually Jerusalem was liberated against remarkable odds and the temple purified and rededicated. An annual feast was then appointed by the people to commemorate God's deliverance of His people and of His house on this particular occasion. It was called the Feast of Dedication, or later the Feast of Lights, and it is today the celebration we know in the Jewish church as Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Hebrew word for dedication. This, too, was a feast and a holiday created by the people. It had no standing in the law of Moses, of course, coming many centuries later. But it is very interesting to observe that our Savior Himself observed this feast. As we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22, He came from Galilee down to Jerusalem to be a part of the festivities of the Feast of Dedication. Jesus certainly didn't have, apparently, the scruples that some Puritans have had about celebrating feasts not specifically mentioned in the Bible. Now, the simple point of all this is that if the exodus from Egypt was remembered annually with a great feast, 
And if the deliverance of the Jews in Persia was celebrated annually with a great holiday, and if the victory of the Maccabees over Antiochus Epiphanes and the rededication of the temple was commemorated again each year with a feast, how much more should the people of God celebrate and remember and commemorate the greatest event in the history of the world and the history of salvation, the incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus Christ to the Virgin Mary. If the Christian church did not celebrate the great acts of her redemption, she would be breaking a great biblical tradition of such celebrations, and the Bible never tells us to do that. It never tells us that we are no longer to remember God's works the way God's people have always remembered them before, with great annual feasts and celebrations. That we are not to do what our Savior Himself did, participating in those holidays and in those feasts. The whole weight of biblical teaching and example is therefore entirely on the side of Christmas. The second argument against the celebration of Christmas is that we don't know when the birth of Jesus Christ occurred, and therefore we are not on December 25th actually commemorating His birthday. That's true. Indeed, it can be put more strongly. The church did not establish the widespread celebration of Christmas until the 4th century, and it is still not clear <coughs> whether or not the 25th of December was chosen because anybody thought Christians were actually on that day celebrating the very birthday of Jesus Christ. The 25th of December was already a pagan holiday devoted to the sun and the worship of the sun, S-U-N. On the other hand, there is some evidence that the 25th of December was chosen because it was nine months after the 25th of March, which someone had, in a rather fantastic way, determined to have been the date of the Lord's conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The data is very confusing, very scattered, doesn't make today a firm conclusion possible as to exactly why the 25th of December came to be the day on which the Christian church celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. But so what? It would be nice to know the day, even the year, on, in which Jesus was born, but we do not. As early as the beginning of the second century, however, there were controversies in the church regarding the proper day on which to celebrate Easter. Should it always be on a Sunday, or should it rather be always that actual day of the month on which the resurrection occurred, in keeping with the calendar on, according to which Passover was celebrated? The church made its own choice to celebrate Easter on the Sunday which follows the first full moon after the beginning of spring. Easter is not tied to the commemoration of the calendar day upon which Jesus rose from the dead. And then, even if it were to be, which is the right opinion about that? Should it always be on a Sunday, or should it be on the calendar day of the month appropriate to the Passover feast? 
These people couldn't even decide whether to celebrate it on the 14th or the 15th of Adar. And as a matter of fact, some of them did it on the 14th, and some of them did it on the 15th, and that apparently was okay with Mordecai. Some of the Old Testament feasts were tied to specific dates. Others were not. Even some feasts, such as tabernacles, set at the autumn harvest, which nevertheless commemorated God's faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness. The time of year in which it was celebrated had much more to do with the agricultural calendar than with any attempt to commemorate a certain or specific time in which certain things had happened in God's dealings with His people. We would need a lot more, we would need to know a lot more to conclude that God was not pleased with the great commemoration of the birth of Jesus if it was celebrated on any other day than the actual day of the year when Mary gave birth. The third argument against Christmas is that we ought to celebrate Christmas every day and not simply one day of the year. You often hear this same argument with respect to Easter. Every Lord's Day should be Easter Sunday for Christians, a day of resurrection, and that is true. Every Sunday should be a celebration of the living Christ and His conquest over death and the grave. And every day in that sense should be Christmas for a Christian. But as an argument against Christmas, this will not stand biblical scrutiny either. The people of God were to remember the Exodus always. And the fact of their deliverance from Egypt was every day to remind them of the graciousness, the power, and the faithfulness of their God and their sworn duty to be faithful to the covenant He had made with them. The prophets spoke of the Exodus very often in their preaching. But that did not mean that a special commemoration of the Exodus annually was inappropriate. Quite the contrary, it was insisted upon. The great virtue of the annual commemoration was that witness was in this way given and in the most happy way given to the fact that what was being celebrated was in fact an event in real history. It occurred on an actual day, in an actual year. Jesus was not born every day of the year. He doesn't, didn't rise from the dead every day of the year as if these things were merely religious ideas, birth and resurrection. He was born on one day and He rose again on another because these are actual events in flesh and blood human history. And it is good, therefore, and always was the biblical pattern to celebrate on a single day or in a single season the very historical events which shape and define every day of our lives. I'll have more to say about that in conclusion. The fourth and last argument raised against the celebration of Christmas is that it is full of pagan and non-Christian elements. The argument is that the Christmas we celebrate today with Christmas trees and lights and eggnog and presents is not so much a Christian holiday as a pagan one and that we Christians are compromising our faith by making use of these elements in our own celebration. Well, that is a caution worth our hearing. The Feast of Tabernacles in the period of the Judges and afterwards became really supplanted Passover 
as the most popular feast of the year precisely because it fell at the same time of the year as did the Canaanite New Year festival. Both were fixed at the time of the autumn harvest of summer fruits. Many of the pagan elements in the Canaanite feast, merrymaking, overindulgence, license, and so on, found their way into the Israelite feast and corrupted it. And we should take very great care that we celebrate Christmas as Christians should with purity and in moderation and with true thanksgiving and worship in our hearts. However, it must also be said that the presence of elements in a Christian service or celebration which have a pagan origin does not by any means necessarily corrupt or defile that service or celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles was clearly intended by the Lord to sanctify the New Year festival of the pagan world. And like that pagan festival, it made much use of the same things that were featured in the pagan festival. The enjoyment of the food just harvested from the vine and the trees and so on. The architecture of Solomon's temple was taken in many respects from the standard architecture of pagan temples in the ancient Near East. Many of the rites and ceremonies which God gave to Israel existed already in pagan forms, but were sanctified by, for the use of God's people and changed in certain ways to make them appropriate. It would be very difficult to demonstrate that pretty trees with lights and ornaments cannot be sanctified to Christian use. Beauty and good cheer of all kinds are featured in all the biblical feasts, and the fact that non-believers use some of the same things never seem to bother the Lord. What is more, not all the features of our Christmas celebration are pagan in origin. You find the exchanging of gifts here and the enjoyment of special kinds of food as part of Purim. You find the exchanging of gifts also in the behavior of the wise men as they came to visit the newborn king and also in the celebration of Saint Nicholas, a Christian bishop of the ancient church who is remembered for his kindness to children. Indeed, should the case not rather be made that we Christians have a greater right to God's trees and to lights and to happiness and cheer and to food and to the custom of giving and receiving presents than anybody else in the world does. I say that the arguments offered against celebrating Christmas are not persuasive. They do not persuade me chiefly because if valid, they tell just as well against the feasts which God himself appointed to be observed in the life of his people. Or they tell against those feasts which were later created by God's people, such as Purim and Hanukkah, but favorably reported in the Bible and celebrated by our Savior himself. If Purim was a good thing, and the scripture's report of it surely suggests that it was, and if Jesus thought it good to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, then it's going to require better arguments than these to demonstrate that Christmas is not a good thing as well that we ought to enjoy. Rather, it seems that Christmas is the entirely proper, no, it is the inevitable extension of this same pattern of feasts and commemorations of God great, God's great work in redemption into this new epoch in which you and I live. But I want to finish 
with a more positive affirmation of Christmas than that. I want to say more than simply that it seems to me permissible and proper for us to celebrate Christmas and to celebrate Christmas as we do with Christmas trees and presents and lights and good food. Auguste Comte, the father of the modern religion of humanism, secular humanism as you're familiar with it, the French rationalist once expressed the hope that as the power of the Christian faith in the Western world waned more and more, humanist feasts would appear to replace the old religious ones, such as Christmas and Easter, which he was sure would disappear in due time. G.K. Chesterton, the great English apologist, professed mock disappointment that none such feasts was forthcoming. He would be glad, he said, for another excuse for a celebration. He could easily imagine himself lighting a bonfire on Charles Darwin Day, or hanging up his stocking on the eve of Victor Hugo's birthday, or singing carols about the infancy of Henrik Ibsen. Today, now these many years later, after Chesterton, we still don't exchange presents on Freud's birthday or trim beautiful trees to celebrate Human Potential Day. There is no thrill in such things to sustain the joy that radiates outward to warm even the unbeliever at Christmas time. We Christians must be and must remain the people in all the world with great historical celebrations. For we are the people in all the world who know that on certain days, ordinary, regular, human, historical days long ago, surpassingly wonderful and magnificent things happened in this world that alone can make life wonderful for human beings both in this life and in the life which is to come. At a point in history some 2,000 years ago, the Son of God and Creator of all things came into the world as a baby boy. He was born as no other ever was to a virgin mother. His birth was announced by angels and so began a life of unspeakable goodness and immeasurable sorrow. It ended on a Roman cross on a Friday afternoon 33 years later. But the very next Sunday he was alive again. He ascended from this world to heaven, sits now at the right hand of the Father, and there awaits the day when he will return to earth a second time to judge the living and the dead and to take with him to heaven all those who have loved him and trusted him and followed him in this world. It was because his life in history is the explanation of all human life and the fulfillment of all human desires and determines the destiny of every human being and therefore is the very center of human history that Dorothy Sayers said of the birth of Jesus Christ that it is the only thing that has really ever happened. No wonder that Christians everywhere should celebrate Christmas and should find it the happiest time of the year and should fill it with everything that is beautiful and happy and pure. If the deliverance of the Jews in Persia should justify Purim as it did, how much more the salvation of the world justifies Christmas. God himself thought it important that the works by which he redeemed his people be remembered in annual commemorations. And being the God of love and joy that he is, 
He made sure that those commemorations were the happiest times of the year for adults as well as for little children with feasting and gifts and wonderful colors and beautiful music. That was the pattern he established for us. By all means, let us be careful to remember the Lord Himself in all our celebrations and to enjoy the season and Christmas itself in Christian purity. But we of all people should enjoy Christmas to the full. For what the world, which also celebrates Christmas and finds it the one truly innocent and happy thing in their whole life, does not understand is that this happiest time of the year, this time of good cheer to which everyone looks so much forward, exists at all because Christians simply felt constrained to remember every year the great thing that had happened long ago when Jesus was born. Someone once said, because of our physical hunger, we know there is bread. And because of our spiritual hunger, we know there is Christ. Well, because there is Christmas, we know that true joy, deep and abiding and pure joy, comes from Jesus Christ alone. It is your Christian privilege then, and I think your Christian duty, adults and children together, to have a merry Christmas. Not a merry little Christmas. That's the kind of thing the world says. As Nehemiah put it, with respect to another one of God's feasts long ago, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send the same to those who have nothing prepared. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm looking forward to buying presents and surprising my children and to Swedish coffee buns and Christmas candy and trimming the tree and singing carols and listening to Christian Christmas music and to Christian worship in these Advent Sundays, and I hope all of you are as well. It is the way the Prince of Life likes to celebrate his birthday with his family. Amen.